Hello and welcome to ProdPod. We're a part of This Is HCD. We're bringing all human-centred practitioners real and honest conversations about product management. My name is Adrienne Tan and I'm the co-founder of BrainMates. Today I'm here with Phil Laufenberg. He's the CPO at Practera, an education software company in Sydney, Australia. We're discussing a quote that has been tatted around in the product management circles for as long as I've been a product manager. And that, my friends, is a really long time. It's close to 20 years. The quote is by Henry Ford, and I'm sure most of you would have heard this quote before. It says, if I've asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Now, there's so much we can talk about that. So let's get started. Hi, Phil. Hello. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Let's start by telling us a little bit about your product management career and what you love about being in product management. Yeah, so my product management career started back in Germany when I was still living there. And I had a few businesses that I set up in parallel to university to really immediately apply the theoretical knowledge that I got from business school and apply it to a real world context of, hey, does that actually work? How can I use the things of, out of the books to have an impact in, in the world? And I've set up a few small businesses in Germany and eventually came to Australia where I joined the um, education technology company, Practera, in the um, first product role that they had. Since then, I was working with universities, either as, as lecturer or, or guest tutor, but also developed a learning platform with them to change the way we think about education. Um, drawing from that experience that I had developing products in my own small companies by applying the theory that I had um, to now develop a product that helps others to do that as well. And given that you've moved from your own small companies to a larger one such as Practera, what were the kind of similarities in, I guess, the product practices moving from you know, small to mid-size? Yeah, the core similarity, I think, is that understanding of the person you develop something for or you create something for. So understanding the customer and what they actually need because you can create whatever you want and I've, I've been guilty of that um, a long time ago to do something that I liked and then went out and no one really wanted it, um, didn't work, so I, I did something else. That was when I was still learning um, throughout my university degree itself. Um, coming to Practera, same thing. Coming to any any company that I've or other product managers that I'm talking to, um, also the same thing. Once we understand what the need is, what the customers need to help them achieve their goals or overcome their struggles, um, that's when you're onto something and, and when product is becoming successful. Excellent. Great segue to our conversation today. Now, we all know that you know what's kind of popular, familiar in the product management space is the infamous quote by Henry Ford. If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. Now, firstly, we know that might not be true. He might not have said that. But I think it kind of summarizes the problems with product or product management in general. And I love to start talking about that. Great quote, and I, I love talking about that specific topic. Totally agree. There's no one in the world who actually can attribute that quote to him. Um, I think there was even a, a researcher who tried to figure it out and, and asked family members. There's no record of that. But as a core value of that quote, um, I think 
it helps me to understand or, or I like it because it goes into one specific area that I don't necessarily agree with, Ooh, um, which is what? interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so controversial. It, controversial. That's what you want in the podcast. Hey. So when, when we think about that statement itself, if I had asked them, they would have wanted a faster horse. I think that's, well, if, if so, great. You, you asked them. That's important customer research. But what I think is that, that you need to go beyond the faster horse, and especially in product management, um, that is your everyday job, going beyond the faster horse. You have to talk to your customers. They might tell you that they want the faster horse, but that's the tip of the iceberg. It's what happens after when you drill down, when you, when you dig deeper into why do they say that? What is behind to un or reveal the problems underneath that you then can tackle? Yep, I completely agree. And so how do you kind of approach, I guess, the interview or the exploratory research process? I mean, we all know that we shouldn't as product people and of course as UXs and service designers never ask the customer what they want. But how do we then kind of dig deeper and move beyond the surface conversation to figure out what the customer problems are? What are some of your techniques? Some of the things that I usually use when, when I'm sitting with someone actually in, in an interview situation is to, of course, don't, as you said, don't start with the leading question. Like, what do you want? Do you like this? Yes, no. <laughs> Chances are they will say yes, because why should they hurt your feelings of saying, I don't, I don't like what you've just poured your heart into? So the, the standard things, you, you start with building some rapport, because later on, it's a tactic to later on enable them to open up to you a little bit, because you need to somehow get a connection and a relationship with your customer, even though it's maybe just half an hour, 45 minutes. So invest the time in, in establishing that. Once it goes into the more interesting um, bits, not interesting, of course, small talk is interesting as well, but once it goes into nice save. <laughs> answering um, the questions that you are after, it normally starts with the symptom. It normally starts, very often it comes out as what they want. It's... Um, not a bad thing necessarily because if you're aware that this is what happens that people start with their symptoms they they start with with some specific aspect that might evolve from an underlying problem and once you have that that's where the conversation starts at where i start digging deeper with anything that a customer in an interview tells you you can ask two questions mainly um, one is the why is that the case and there's a technique called the five whys, which basically just tells you, okay, ask why, 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 why. And roughly about five times you are at the root cause of the problem. It's a really intuitive technique that I have seen a lot of times in areas where you, when you think about it from a, from a design or product point of view, it's super obvious, but I, I previously haven't thought about it. Children. Like I think we all have have either been the child asking why is that why is that why is that until so you get so annoying <laughs> until you get into that infinite loop and that infinite loop then is the is the root cause but you can apply that technique in any interview setting as well the second question that will help uncover more and and build up more of an emotional relationship or emotional topics is so what so when a customer or an interviewee tells you something you just so so what 
and you ask for that reaction. How do you dare even asking that? It is so obvious why I'm saying this. That's where, where you can see what the prioritization for that would be and where you can dig in deeper. So when, when you hear something, it's often the, the symptom, it's often the first thing that they think about. But by asking very few simple questions, um, you reveal a lot more than you would have thought. Very often, at least, that's my experience. Now, I'm going to bring up something controversial because I have done quite a few customer interviews as well. And sometimes I find asking in various guises why quite challenging, especially five times. Have you done that? Have you actually asked why five times? I did actually, um, <laughs> just not <laughs> why, 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 why. Great. There, there are other ways of, of yes. um, articulating that same question. And five is, is a non-scientific number that leads to it. So if you, a lot of times you ask why and then why again, and then you see that it goes into a direction that has nothing to do with your capabilities to solve, like what your, what your company or, or your organization is um, focusing on. At that point, you can stop, either pull it back to a new track or go with one of the things that have been mentioned. So you don't, don't have to go five times. And yeah, different, different articulations of the, of the question. I agree with you. Asking why, 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 then probably has, has, does more harm than good. Yes. And I think, you know, for our listeners, it's really important to say that the technique's great, but how you phrase the question or how you rephrase the question in some cases is really important so that you still continue to maintain that rapport, you know, with your customer. Absolutely. So when you get told something that might be an underlying problem, but you're not yet happy, you, you, you feel that there might be something else, or you just, I am normally genuinely interested in understanding it. I think that's a, that's a big factor, because if you play the interest, if you're not authentic, then you have a hard time anyway to get to the, to the bottom of it. But if, you, if you're really inquisitive and, and interested and want to understand more, then you can articulate in a way as like, what do you think might cause something like that, what you just said, and you insert their words um, to get them thinking of the next step without mentioning the word why. You, you can probably go through the five whys without mentioning why um, even once. So having, having a few of these support sentences or alternative sentences on hand um, is, is helpful. Excellent. Now, I'm going to ask you the question in a different way, especially given the fact that we have sort of lean experimental kind of techniques available to us today. Do you think then we could essentially test out the hypothesis? If I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horse. Do you think we could test this out using a lean experiment? Depends on how slow the horse was of the person <laughs> who said that. Well, let's forget the horse. I guess yeah. it's the concept, right? People have an idea about what a solution for them might be. And as product people, we use lots of different kinds of techniques and the user research method is one way. But then potentially there is a way to kind of test out that hypothesis. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first step is to go into a customer interview at all. And if the first thing you hear is actually a problem that you think is valuable already, there's no harm in checking that out and, and quickly um, coming up with a prototype or a mock-up that can validate the importance or, the, or the, um, the benefit that would be available to that person and hopefully a, a large enough market segment if you solved it. 
that's also where a lot of team structures probably come in because to develop a prototype you need to have some capabilities early in the customer discovery phase so if you have cross-functional team engineers and designers and product managers who all are involved in that early stage of customer discovery absolutely what if you don't what if you had just a product manager what if you you were some lonely product manager could you not test this out Oh, poor lonely product manager. No, you, you <laughs> well, could. generally they're, they're poor lonely product managers. Sorry, no, guys. <laughs> there are tools out there that do enable you to test it out. And I, I am sometimes that lonely product manager who has to test out because the designers are busy on the work that is at hand and the engineers are implementing the previous things. But tools like Balsamic, for example, and that, that you really, really quickly create prototypes, clickable prototypes, even if it's just uh, sketches on paper and... There was a situation where I um, had the same person in the morning and in the afternoon, and I had a quick chat with her. We, we had a brief conversation about her pain points. I came up with a few sketches and just flicked them back to her um, via email and received feedback the, that evening. So it's absolutely um, possible to quickly and briefly create something that you can test and validate with, then potentially also with other people um, in the same segment if you have access. But um, to your point, yeah, don't, don't make it a one-week, two-week, four-week iteration. It's not, not necessary. Excellent. And so going back to the famous quote, have you, have you made this mistake? Have you gone out to ask, you know, customers what solution they're after and what were the results? <laughs> yes, guilty. Me too, guilty as well, early on in the career. <laughs> and, and, well, the good and not so good thing is you can get lucky. So if you get lucky with that, then it might incentivize the wrong behavior or the wrong perception of other people, how customer interviewing should be done. So if you are lucky, that might actually be bad in the long term because you, you don't realize, you don't learn from your experience of, of what you've done wrong. However, the at some point, you will run out of luck and you will just realize how much time you wasted down the line because it's not just designing and, and implementing and launching the wrong thing. It's also maintaining that thing now. Internally, there's, there's support and, and a perception of that new thing that is now in the product. Why would you get rid of that again? So it becomes just so expensive to to backpedal once it's it's out in the marketplace. So the earlier you, you validate and the more you can prevent betting on the wrong horse, mm. um, the better down the line. And I think though, whilst as product and UX folks, we know and we're learning the techniques to not bet on the wrong horse, very often in any size organisation, you know, from a startup right up to a really large business, there are lots of different kinds of stakeholders that come up with you and say, we need the faster horse. Now, how do you manage that conversation yeah. when your executives and stakeholders want you to build a faster horse because they know best? <laughs> the, the hippo. Absolutely. So you mentioned a very important point. Customer interviews ideally are with your customers, always. But practically and realistically, that's not the case. A lot of ideas and a lot of input that you get is from your coworkers, from your, from your managers, from executives. And how I go about that is really appreciating that first and foremost. Because one, it tells you that someone is genuinely interested in improving 
the product in doing something good to the users or the buyers or the customers of the product. So there must be something in there. I'm always looking for that that nugget of gold that is in that idea. There was something that sparked this specific request. The difficult part then is to manage the expectation that just because you have an opinion or an idea about that, it will end up in the product. Because if we would do that, if we give in to this workflow, then we will not have time to think about or, or go out and, and find the, the really valuable problems. Again, it might be just the right thing. If you're lucky, um, you get told the right thing. But more often than not, it's an underlying problem that is true, but the solution to that problem is normally the wrong one. So what I, what I do with stakeholders often is when they come up with an idea, I immediately try to change the conversation to the problem. Like getting to the to the bottom of the problem by asking why do you think that this solution would help and who would benefit from that? So getting the who is it for and what problem do we solve for the business? Depending on who the stakeholder is that comes up with the idea, if it's more on the business side, I also ask how would it benefit the business in numbers? Especially with executives, that helps a lot. The second bit that I do is differentiating between opinions and facts. Um, do you have some data? If not, okay, it's an opinion. And getting a, an understanding that I don't say that because I devalue your opinion. As I said before, the, if it comes up the, from an expert who's in that field, and your colleagues normally are, um, there's something to be discovered there. But one thing that really, really worked well in the past when this happened is using these questions of who would it be for? What is the problem? Why did you come up? What, what have you experienced? It might be someone from customer success who hears all the time about this one issue. It might be someone from sales who, who hears or who has a perception of with this extra thing, customers would buy it more often. And changing that to what is their problem then and how would they benefit from it? That alone, first of all, changes the conversation to a customer-centric, problem-based thinking approach. And then at the same time, I say, okay, if I would go with only that piece of information, who it is for, what their problem is, to the other room and ask a few people there, hey guys, this is a customer of ours or a customer segment with these specific problems. What do you think we could do to get rid of that problem? And I asked the initial person, do you think that the entire room would come up with exactly the same idea that Ooh, you had? Oh, I love this one. I'm going to try this one. <laughs> um, so far, I was very successful with that. And, and there comes the immediate retrospect. Oh, yeah, there, uh, there might be other solutions to that. And that gives me the space I need to really discover what is behind there. What is the solution space? Because, again, going back to the quote, it might be that you were just told to build the faster horse. Was what I then did is change it to, okay, I now understand that people need to go faster from A to B. A specific segment of people needs to go faster from A to B. Hey, other people, what do you think? And maybe the engineers know, you know what, there's this new thing uh, called combustion engine. Maybe we can do something <laughs> with that, which your initial stakeholder might not have the information even. So in, in that way, it helped me a lot to get the permission to explore and discover further. And have you ever come unstuck by using this technique? You know, have you ever encountered someone that said, 
no, I'm really sorry. I don't want to answer that question. Why don't you believe me? You know, any kind of negativity and how do you kind of overcome that? At times, yes, it happens. Um, there, there's so many different facets to that problem. First of all, okay, understand what is it just before lunch and there's hangriness. <laughs> is it what, what's happening um, around in, in their lives? Uh, especially when you're co-located, that's easier to, to get an understanding. Sometimes it's good to just acknowledge the fact and come back to it a bit later. You have a choice to debate at any point. So if you feel that there's a lot of negativity coming towards you when you push back a little bit and unearth, chances are it's something else is going on and it's a, it's a bit of a venting and it that person would have a different opinion or would be able to communicate or go into a discussion with a more positive mindset mm -hmm. when the environment or the context changes. So that's one thing that I would always think about first. Why is it such a debate and, and why is there negativity in there? Because in the end, you're still going for the same goal. You're still working for the same organization on the same product, apparently, <laughs> and that hopefully and that product has a vision and a mission so you're all driving there i go from the initial concept of everyone wants to contribute to that mission to reach it and everyone has their opinions and everyone has their lives and everyone has good days and bad days that's number one if it is however not that and it's someone who is so convinced that it's the right thing to do there are a few other techniques and and methods I use to then go ahead with it. As you said before, it doesn't take long to create something that you can use a test, a prototype, a clickable something. And very often the stakeholders appreciate that as, yes, you have taken on their idea. Because from a debate to immediately push back, even if you, if you know it's probably not the one, but it doesn't take a lot these days anymore to go with it and say, okay, I, I trust that with your experience that you had and norm, what I feel is or what I've experienced is that people who are pushy on no, but I know it's best are the ones with a lot of experience in the field. So you should respect that as well because the, the probability that there's something correct in there and something very valuable in their opinion is a given. So it's not that bad to then take it on, respect it and again, be curious about what is behind that. And, and normally I then really want to figure out, okay, if I haven't thought about that, but someone else who is in that industry, in that environment for a decade plus, I want to learn how that person came to that conclusion. And I learned that by quickly doing a prototype, quickly talking to one or two people in the kind of customer segment that is relevant and unearth either I was wrong with my opinion, um, great, I learned, or we found something that's even more valuable and I wouldn't go back and say you were wrong. I was like, I checked your idea. It was great. And by talking to our customers who pay for the product, we found something even better. What do you think about that? And continue the conversation to build the relationships because otherwise you burn bridges right and left and center and then you have a hard time going through in, in the future. It sounds like you have such an open mind and that you're calm and you're very patient. Would you describe yourself as that? And is that generally how product managers should behave? 
I leading question. Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think you should be balanced. You should not get into heated debates when it's not necessary. Think about the people you work with and you are all in your role and in a job working for a common cause and make that your first priority whenever you think about something. Debate and different opinions about a topic are important. That's how how innovation happens. If we are different, that means we explore different angles of the same problems. Often it's not worth to get angry or mad or lose the the cool in those situations. And I th- also think it's it's something you can learn and to, to become more resilient and become more understanding of when situations arise where it gets heated and step in and be the, the moderator and facilitator of those conversations if it's you and other people or at least be um, be mindful of what's happening. And, and yeah, I think everyone would definitely benefit from being calm and, and balanced um, in those meetings. Because in product, every product manager deals with a whole array of stakeholders and you have to make decisions that normally don't please everyone. If you make decisions only to please everyone, your product probably won't succeed. So learning that skill of being resilient and being mindful and being able to be the calm product manager in, in the middle of the, of the chaos is uh, a good benefit, I think. Lots of wise words there, Phil. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for your time today. And I think one thing that stands out for me is the, apart from the fact that, you know, you shouldn't ask your customers the question, do you want a faster horse? I think the more important learning is focusing on the fact that everybody in the organization hopefully is driving towards the same goal. And if you have that kind of common understanding, then, you know, the heatedness, the potential angry situations can be calmed somewhat if we all know, believe, understand that we're all working towards the same goal. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ProdPod. If you want to learn more about the wonderful shows on This Is HGD, we've got others, such as The Power of Ten with Andy Pallane, Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion, and Ethnopod with Dr. John Curran. Please visit thisishgd.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter, join our Slack channel, connect with other human-centred practitioners around the world. Thank you for listening and speak to you next time.